Well, one of my favorite shows is The West Wing. I don't know whether that ages me or not. I don't know whether that makes me like my parents. But it's so good. We can talk about the merits of the show another time, at least seasons one through four, because everything after season five is hot trash. But at least up to season four, and there's one interaction. Some of you may remember it if you watched the show between President Bartlett and Dr. Jenna Jacobs, a conservative Christian radio talk show host. President Bartlett walks in and notices Dr. Jacobs sitting there. And he turns to her and says, I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. And Dr. Jacobs responds, well, I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. President Bartlett then responds, yes, it does in Leviticus. And Dr. Jacobs calls out chapter 18, verse 22. President Bartlett says, chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here, he says. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleans the table when it's her turn. What would be a good price for her? While thinking about that, he continued, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Well, Exodus 35.2 clearly says that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's the one that's really important, he says. Because we got a lot of sports fans in this town. It says, touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Well, Leviticus 11.7, if they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? And of course, if you watch the show, it's a rousing triumph for President Bartlett, of course. And Dr. Jenna Jacobs slinks back in silence. But President Bartlett's objections and in the way that he interprets the Bible are not uncommon. Maybe some of you have had some of the similar questions. Maybe you even engaged with others in your own evangelism or, or, or maybe with friends or family members that have had similar objections, and you open up to the middle of your Bible in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you think, what in the world do I do with this? Is this what God is demanding from us? How do I know what applies and what doesn't apply? Every local church has two primary responsibilities. To protect the Christian gospel and to preserve Christian liberty. To protect the Christian gospel and to preserve Christian liberty. That is to say that as your pastor, my primary responsibility is to open up the Bible and to preach the gospel and to apply it to your lives in a way that is faithful to the gospel. That is in light of Christ and His finished work. 
But one of my other duties as a pastor is to train and teach and equip you, even as I aim to do the same, that is to not bind one another to what the Bible doesn't bind you to, and to only bind one another to what the Bible does bind you to in Christ. So much division and so much error in Christian churches arises from a misunderstanding of the Mosaic Covenant. And these misunderstandings of the Mosaic Covenant arise principally because of flawed covenant theology. Far too often, legalism in the church looks like the folding of too much old covenant into the new. The folding of too much law into the gospel, and so you'll have pastors that argue for the application of Israel's civil law in the political realm of every nation on earth. It's the way that God has given Christians to exercise dominion, they might say. Or you might have another error through capital P, patriarchy. That is, those who argue that God still transacts His promises through the family, just as He did in the Old Covenant. And therefore, the patriarch, the man of the family, has certain responsibilities according to the Old Covenant in the leading of his home and in the instruction of his children. Now, both of those kinds of errors have plenty of truth to them. All error does. But these, along with others, and I could keep on going, inevitably folds too much Old Covenant into the New. It folds too much law into the Gospel and it does so because it misunderstands the Mosaic Covenant. That's what we're going to consider today. What is the Mosaic Covenant? How are we to relate to it? How does it relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And in light of that, how do we even think about the tension between the law and the gospel such that we as a church are able to protect the Christian gospel and we are able to preserve Christian liberty, never binding one another to anything that God and His Word in light of Christ, doesn't bind us to, that we would not return again, as the Apostle Paul says, to that yoke of bondage from which Christ has set us free. That's what we're going to consider today. And as we do, we're going to see God's marvelous kindness in redemptive history in showing us the gospel that's what we've been doing, really, in studying covenant theology, starting with the covenant of works, and then considering Noah and Abraham, and now considering the covenant with Israel through Moses, is really considering Christ in all the Scriptures. We want a 30,000-foot, blimps-eye view of the Scriptures, so that when you go home and you're reading your Bible, no matter where you are, you can locate yourself in it and properly relate to the gospel anywhere in the Bible. A good covenant theology helps you do that. And today we're going to consider the Mosaic Covenant. For our scripture reading, we could go to a lot of different places, but for our scripture reading this afternoon, I'm going to read from Exodus 19. Israel is brought to the foot of Sinai. And I would invite you to stand with me to honor the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus 19. On the third moon, 
after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and he called the elders to the people, and he set before them all these words the Lord God had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Last week, I told you that the context for the Mosaic Covenant was the Abrahamic Covenant. Two things especially create this context in the Abrahamic covenant. Promised affliction and promised redemption. If you were to glance back at Genesis 15, you would see in verse 13 that God promised, you remember this? That Abraham's descendants, who'd be more numerous than the sand of the sea, would inherit Canaan. But then he says that those promises aren't going to be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. And so God told him, know for certain then that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they're going to be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years is a long time. And if you were a Hebrew slave in Egypt, then the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob three to four hundred years earlier were just that, stories. And yet God made a covenant with Abraham. And He promised Abraham that He was going to make Abraham fruitful and that He was going to multiply his descendants. And that is exactly what God did in the womb of Egypt. When you get to the book of Exodus at the beginning, chapter 1, you see that the, that the book starts with Jacob's descendants, 70 in whole. It's a perfect number, a new humanity. And then in a matter of verses, it says that they, that they multiplied and increased greatly, that they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So God promised Abraham offspring, and he delivered but he also promised affliction for those offspring. 
And yet in that affliction, in that promised affliction, he promised to give them also the land of Canaan. The affliction is going to take place in a land that is not their own, and yet he still promised to give them a land that would be their own, to bring them back to the very land that Abraham was standing on when God made that covenant with him. Which is to say that God not only promised affliction for Abraham's offspring, But that promise was coupled with a promised redemption. Again, in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, I am going to bring judgment on the nation that they serve. We know that to be Egypt. And afterwards, they're going to come out with great possessions. But come out and go where? They're going to come back to Canaan, God says. That Abraham's offspring went into Egypt as a family, and they came out of Egypt a nation. And in leading them into the promised land, God would turn the nation into a kingdom. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, for God's glory. In other words, the context for the Mosaic Covenant is the Abrahamic Covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant initiated the kingdom of Israel. That is a promised offspring in a promised land. That much is made clear in Exodus chapter 2. Now, I'm going to be flying pretty quick here at first, so just hang with me. If you want to go back and you want to get all of the chapters and verses, we'll post the audio online. You can go back and let's do it again. But in Exodus chapter 2, right before God called Moses as Israel's redeemer, this is what the Bible says, God heard his people's groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, when Moses wrote that God remembered, he's not implying that God somehow forgot. The language of remembering is the language of acting. The time of promised affliction had passed. The fullness of time had come. The time for promised redemption had arrived, just as God said it would in His covenant with Abraham. And so, the context for the Mosaic Covenant is the Abrahamic Covenant. God multiplied Abraham's offspring in affliction, and He would give them the land of Canaan. In turn, the Mosaic Covenant would then condition for Abraham's offspring, the enjoyment of those Abrahamic promises in the land. So, if the Abrahamic covenant initiates the old covenant, then the Mosaic covenant conditions it for Israel in the land of Canaan as promised to Abraham, which is really just to say that God has kept His covenant promises. But would Abraham's offspring keep theirs? That's the question that leads us to our second main point. I've just considered the context of the covenant, but now what I want to consider is secondly, the character of the covenant. Let's consider the character of the covenant. That through the chaos of the Red Sea and the empty land through the wilderness, God created and formed Abraham's offspring into a people. He intended to give them the land of Canaan as promised, but before they could enjoy Canaan's blessings, they had to endure Sinai's boom. We just read Exodus 19, 1 through 8, but I want to call your attention 
that what we see happening here at Sinai is really God creating, as it were, a corporate Adam. God's priest kings under God's rule in God's place. Even the psalmist reflected on Israel's creation using Adamic language, Psalm 42.1. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. Same two words used of the creation of Adam all the way back in Genesis 2. Same language used of Israel, Psalm 42.1. And so just as God created and formed Adam and then placed him in Eden with the law as a priest king. So now God is creating and forming Israel as a kind of corporate Adam to place them in Canaan with his law as a kingdom of priests. It's really amazing. As you read the Bible front to back, you start to see themes begin to emerge that get traced from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and we see that happening here. That similarly to Adam in the garden, loyalty is going to be demanded and loyalty, obedience, will be rewarded. Let's consider each one of these in order. First of all, let's just consider in what ways is loyalty demanded? Consider first there in Exodus 19 how God's demands for loyalty are implied in verse 5. If you don't have your Bibles open, I encourage you to go ahead and open there. In verse 5 of Exodus 19, you can see there, if then, conditional language. If you obey my voice and if you keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. That by his word, God is forming the seed of Abraham into a corporate Adam. And like Adam, there to be a priestly nation, a kingly nation, and a prophetic nation, worshiping as priests, ruling as kings, and embodying God's law as prophets. And if we're going to understand Israel's commission in the land according to God's law, then we need to consider each one of these in order. How exactly was Israel to be a priestly nation? Well, first of all, we see as much in God's word right here in this chapter. Verses 4 and 5, he says that if you obey covenant, you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. That at Sinai, as I've said, God created a kind of corporate Adam to be a priestly nation, and he charges them then to be holy in their worship. That they were to rid Canaan of all false worship. That they were to make sure that no false worship ever came in again. And if they kept covenant, then they would be God's priests to the nation. Of God's image bearers reflecting his glory to the world. But they weren't just to be a priestly nation, they were also to be a kingly nation. They were meant to be subduing Canaan and ruling the land as righteous kings. And so in the same way in Eden, Adam was to exercise dominion by judging good from evil according to God's law. So also we see the same with Israel. And in the same way that Adam had a kind of snake-crushing commission... That is to wage war against every enemy that opposes God's kingdom. So it is with Israel, this corporate Adam entering into Canaan. 
That they were expected to filter everything through God's law. That they were to rule Canaan in righteousness. They were to wage war against every enemy that rose up against God and his kingdom. And if Israel obeys God's covenant as his kingly people, then God promises that he will fight for them. But if they break covenant... If they instead submit themselves to the nations as servants rather than ruling the land as kings, welcoming the nation's idols rather than tearing them down, then God promises that He will fight against them. They are to be a kingly nation. And then finally, like Adam, they are to be a prophetic nation. A prophet is one that receives God's word, and then he acts as God's mouthpiece on earth. Prophets, in essence, embody truth. In the same way that Adam was to learn God's law, to meditate on it, trust it, obey it, and pass it down to his descendants that he might fill the earth with godly seed, so also at Sinai, God gave the nation his law, and the nation promised to meditate on it, to obey it, and to pass it down to every generation, that they might fill Canaan with godly seed. Above all, A properly prophetic people preserves the first and the second commandment, which God delivers to them in the very next chapter, to to worship God alone and to not create any carved image, any likeness of God, that is to reject idolatry. They are to worship God and to worship no images of Him. That was Israel's commission. He created them outside of Canaan, brought them to the brink of a mountain, gave them a law, and then commissioned them to be prophets, priests, and kings in a land that He would give them, in a kingdom that He would establish, God's people under God's word, ruling in God's place for God's glory, just as we saw with Adam in the garden. But punctuating Israel's success or failure as God's priests and kings and prophets in the land are the sanctions that God adds in the covenant. And we see that in chapter 24. So turn to your right, chapter 24. When you're teaching through the Mosaic Covenant, and you sit down on Monday morning, you go, how am I going to preach this? I'm going to start in Exodus. I'm going to work my way all the way to the end of the Gospels. (laughs) It's going to be a long sermon. It won't be, I promise. But we are going to stop. Well, maybe. Maybe. We're not going to be able to look at a whole lot, but we are going to look at some key texts. We're going to bounce around a little bit, and we're going to draw out some necessary inferences so that we might better understand the Mosaic Covenant. Now we're in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, that is his law. And he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people to Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins. 
and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The sprinkling of blood that we see here in Exodus 24 is essentially an oath of loyalty, and it is a vow of accountability. It's the placement of sanctions with the implication of threats in a covenant relationship. Remember, a command is just a command, and a promise is just a promise. But what turns a command or a promise into a covenant is a sanction, and that's what we see here. That through this covenant-cutting ritual and its elaboration that we see later on in Deuteronomy 27 and 28... God is essentially saying, if you obey, then you will enjoy all of the Abrahamic blessings in the land. But if you break covenant, then I will cut you off just as you have cut apart these animals. In return, the people say, verse 7, we will obey, implying from the splattered blood, may the same be done to us if we break covenant. In essence, they're saying, may the wages of our sin be death. The honeymoon doesn't last long. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Israel receives God's law in the form of God's covenant, and they quickly break God's law, and they break His covenant. Turn to your right again to chapter 32. Remember, Israel was created outside of Canaan. And then like Adam, they were given a law to serve as God's kingdom of priests in the land for God's glory. But now we see, in a sense, in Exodus 32, it's Genesis 3 all over again. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. But instead of worshiping the Lord, they worshiped an idolatrous calf. They were meant to be God's prophets in the land. They were meant to guard Above all, the first and the second commandment of His law, to worship the true God only and to not make any images of Him. And in one fell swoop, they violate both. 
It's Genesis 3 all over again. Then in verse 9, you can glance there. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, and behold, they are stiff Necked. Skip down to verse 25. When Moses saw the people, it says, They have broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Recall that Adam and Eve, when we studied this just a few weeks ago, having been created in God's image, were in Genesis 3 transformed into the serpent's image when they tried to deceive God just as they were deceived. Here we have a rerun of the garden, that instead of worshiping God and becoming more like Him, the Israelites worship the calf, and they become more cattle-like. They are a stiff-necked people running wild out of control. And there's an important lesson here for us. You and I will always resemble what we revere for better or for worse. We will reflect what we worship for better or for worse? Will we be those who by God's grace image God to the world? Or will we just image more of the world to the world? It's Genesis 3 all over again. And so here Israel has failed as priests. They've allowed their worship to be corrupted. They have failed as kings to wage war against sin. And they have failed as God's prophets by failing to preserve and to protect the heart of God's law. And then similar to the garden, the results, oh, beloved, the results were catastrophic. Look at verse 27. We see there that death follows sin, just as we see at the beginning of the Bible. And ultimately, expulsion from the land follows death. None of this wilderness generation will ever enter or enjoy blessed life in Canaan because they have broken covenant. It is Genesis 3 all over again, sort of. I say sort of because even though God's covenant with Israel was like the covenant of works in the garden, it wasn't a rerun of the same covenant of works. That while God's covenant with Adam was both kind and severe, it was both of those, His covenant with Israel is slightly less severe. Death and sin don't spread to all men, and in some ways it is more kind. I want us to consider God's kindness through the covenant in three ways, through His promises, through His provision, and through His preservation. So we have seen so far the context of the covenant. And we have seen the character of the covenant. It is a covenant of works whereby Israel, should they obey, will enjoy blessed life in the land, imaging God to the nations. But if they disobey, then death and dispossession will follow. But now we consider the kindness of the covenant, the kindness of God's providence or promises, the kindness of His provision and the kindness of His preservation. When I mention God's promises, I want you to keep in mind that the context for the Mosaic Covenant is the Abrahamic Covenant. I'm going to keep saying that to you over and over again because it's really important. God has to be faithful to Abraham and his offspring because God made covenant. He promised to multiply Abraham's family 
and he did it. He promised to bring them out of affliction in the furnace of Egypt, and he did it. And now he's brought them to the edge of Canaan to give it to them as an inheritance, just as he promised. So beyond that, the Abrahamic covenant, you may remember, also reveals and promises God's one covenant of grace. That is a single offspring from Abraham that will mediate God's heavenly blessings to the whole world. And that promised covenant of grace will be further revealed to Israel through the Mosaic covenant in a number of ways, and especially through His kindness. If you have your Bible, keep it open there to chapter 32. I want you to look at verse 11. Notice what God says, actually in verse 10. He says, I am going to consume them. His wrath is burning hot against them. God's goodness demands justice against sin. The bloody sanctions of the covenant preached that the wages of sin were death, and our God is a consuming fire. But just like in our own lives, pressure produces prayer. That's what we see in verses 12 and 13. Moses turns to God and pleads with Him not to destroy the nation. And notice what he prays. He prays God's promises back to God. He says in verse 13, remember Abraham. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel or Jacob. Those to whom you have sworn. And so once again, God's promises to Abraham are creating the context for the Mosaic covenant. And then in verse 14, God hears Moses' cry. And look at this. He relents from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Beloved, God was kind to bring Moses, or to Moses by bringing Moses to the place that his only plea to God, the only plea that he could make to God was God's promises. God's kind to do the same for us. That when it seems like God's promises are failing all around you because of the stubbornness of indwelling sin, because of the slowness of your sanctification, because of your own doubts and lack of assurance regarding those future promises of your inheritance in Christ, that when it seems like God's promises are failing all around you, not that they can, but when it seems like they are, we can pray God's promises back to God. We can hold God accountable to His promises. You said, you swore, and you have to do it. And that becomes our confidence. Because when we pray God's promises back to God, we know that His answer in Christ is always yes and amen. Amen? Friends, you know that you are praying God's will when you are praying God's Word back to God. And that's exactly what we see Abraham or Moses doing here. So God spares Israel because of promises that He made in His covenant with Abraham. His purposes for His covenant of grace aren't yet fulfilled. But how is it then that they can come to pass when God's covenant partner is so unfaithful? 
The answer to that question is found in another kindness, not just in God's promises, but also in His provision. Remember, God created Israel as a kind of corporate Adam. They were to be a priestly, kingly, and prophetic people in the land to the nations. All of these offices were united in Adam in the garden, and all three of these were united with Israel as a corporate Adam at Sinai. But just like Adam, Israel failed in their threefold office. And so God splinters that office into three distinct offices, a priestly office, a kingly office, and a prophetic office. And in each one of these offices, God kindly provides for the nation to restrain their sin and to bless them according to His covenant with Abraham in the land. First, Israel's kingly office was established, you remember, with David. God promised Abraham in Genesis 17 that kings were going to come from him. Then we saw in Genesis 49 through Jacob's oracles that that kingship promise was going to pass through Judah. And those promises to Judah are first fulfilled in an earthly sense through King David, the first true king of Israel. On the one hand, the Davidic kingship was given by God in His kindness to represent Israel's kingdom before the nations. The king's job was to obey God's law, to maintain peace in the land, and to wage war against every threat from their enemies. If you think about it in terms of of David and Goliath, the true king is God's champion against the nations, standing in the place of the nation. That's what the king was meant to be. That's what God provided in His kindness. But on the other hand, Israel's kings also represented the nation to God, mediating God's blessings in the land through their own covenant obedience. Sometimes things went well when the kings obeyed God according to covenant. Oftentimes, things didn't go so well. You can see that in the book of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. But the primary lesson that you see through all of those books is this. Just like we saw in the garden, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Is that going to be an important theme when we get to the new covenant? You better believe it. And so that's God's first kindness, is a kingly office to represent the nation that they might enjoy God's covenant blessings in the land. But secondly, alongside kings, Israel's prophets were appointed by God to be His mouthpieces on earth and specifically to the nation. They were commanded to model godly living. They were commanded to speak God's law to the nation, often calling the entire nation, and especially the kings, especially the priests, to repentance. And that both of these offices, the kingly office and the priestly office, both of them in a number of ways further revealed God's promised covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate king and the perfect prophet. But arguably, no office was as important to Israel as the third and final office, and that was the priestly office. Israel's priests were responsible for maintaining the purity of Israel's worship as they represented the nation before God through various rituals and practices. One of those rituals included a yearly sacrifice, the only one that was offered for the whole nation. Lots of sacrifices that individuals could offer through the priests, but there was only one for the whole nation offered on the Day of Atonement. You can read about it, Leviticus 16. 
And on that day, God graciously covered Israel's sins year after year after year through the shed blood of a substitute offered by a sympathetic high priest. Sound familiar? That was one way that God kept Abraham's offspring in Canaan despite Israel's inability to keep the Mosaic Covenant. How was God going to keep Israel in the land for the purpose of fulfilling His gospel promises? He would kindly provide provisions through a priestly office whereby, at least outwardly, Israel's covenant-breaking sins would be covered and they could remain in the land for yet another year until they had to do it again and again and again. The problem with the old covenant is that priests kept on dying. And the blood of bulls and goats were insufficient, sufficient to clean you outwardly, but not sufficient to give you a new heart. You needed something more. So those sacrifices ultimately proved insufficient. They were sufficient on the one hand to keep sinners in the land, but they were insufficient to keep sinners out of hell. For that, the world needed a better high priest. For that, the world needs a better covenant based on better promises. A high priest who never dies but lives forever. One who enters God's holy place not by the blood of bulls and goats but by the perfect offering of His own blood. An offering that is sufficient not for temporary stay in a temporary land but for an eternal redemption into a heavenly Jerusalem. Beloved, God's kindness... In the Mosaic Covenant is visible in Israel's priestly office because Israel's priestly office further reveals Christ in the promised covenant of grace, whereby all of God's elect would be saved. All three of these promises, prophet, priest, and king, were all designed by God in His kindness to work together seamlessly under the, under the Mosaic Covenant. They were God's provision for the sake of God's preservation, which leads us to a second kindness, that is, God's preservation, or a third kindness, rather, that despite establishing priests to purify and sending prophets to warn, Israel continued to break covenant over and over and over. No king proved to be the king. No priest proved to be the priest. No prophet proved to be the prophet. And eventually, God exiled Israel, disinherited them from the land, just as He promised in His covenant. But even in exile, God doesn't disinherit Israel because He made a promise to Adam and He made a promise to Abraham that is yet unfulfilled Namely, that the blessing of the nations would come through a serpent-crushing seed of the woman. His promised gospel is not yet fulfilled. God is not done with Israel. And so when Abraham's offspring returned from exile, a diminished kingdom in a demolished land, not as kings, but as servants of foreign kings, Nehemiah reminded them of God's kindness in preserving them. Turn in your Bibles again to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, you can go to the Psalms right there in the middle of your Bible, and then I want you to turn two books to your left. You'll pass all the way through Job, 
It's Job. All the way, whoops, sorry, three books, Esther, then Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9. Too much to read here, but I just want to point out a handful of things in Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. Here the people of Israel have re-entered the land, they've confessed their sins, and this is what they say. Verse 7, verse 6 rather, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose, get this, Abram, and brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans, and you gave him the name Abraham. And then you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. They're just quoting Genesis 15. Scan down to verse 13. Look at this. They said, you have come down on Mount Sinai. They're recalling their own history. You've come down on Mount Sinai. You have spoken with them from heaven, and you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Skip down again to verse 29. So we're scanning through all of the history of Israel. Verse 29, we some Sinai, and now we're all the way through deportation. Verse 29, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. And yet they acted presumptuously. They didn't obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them, and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, and yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And yet nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria to this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Who will bring a charge against God? And all that you have done to us according to covenant, they say, you have been righteous, and we haven't. That Israel confesses God's kindness, that He proved to be true to His Word from beginning to the end of their history and all throughout, that He's a God that keeps covenant, they said, and steadfast love. Beloved, if this is the case, if God can keep His earthly promises to an earthly people, getting them all the way home from exile to, a, to the rubble of Jerusalem... Will He not keep His everlasting promises to Abraham and get each one of us safely home? Indeed, He will hold us fast and He will get us home to heaven in spite of our own sin because we belong to His covenant of grace and Christ is our covenant head. And that leads me to my final consideration. What then is the goal of the Mosaic covenant, of God's kindness through His promises and His provision and his preservation, what's the goal? What's the end game for the Mosaic Covenant and the people of Israel? So we've learned about the context of the covenant. 
We've considered the character of the covenant. We've considered the kindness of the covenant. But finally, we need to consider what is the goal of the covenant. So far, just by way of summary, this is what we've considered. The Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works made with Abraham's physical offspring for the final accomplishment of God's promised covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. The old covenant serves and is subservient to the new covenant of grace. But if that's the case, then here's the question. Why the old covenant? Why? Or to put it in the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians 3, why was the law given at all? What's its goal? Turn there with me. Galatians chapter 3. This will be the last text that we look at. Lots of text all throughout the New Testament that we could go to to prove the point. But Galatians 3 is as good as any, if not better. And as we look, we're going to consider two things here in Galatians 3. A twofold goal is going to stand out. That is, first of all, to preserve, and second of all, to prepare. We're going to see that the purpose of the old covenant, specifically the Mosaic covenant and its law, is first of all to preserve the promised seed, and it is secondly to prepare Israel for the full revelation of Christ in the gospel. To preserve and to prepare. Begin with me, Galatians 3, verse 16. We'll start in 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, how long was Israel in captivity according to God's promise? Around 430 years. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a Promise, And so here we see the first goal of the Mosaic Covenant was to preserve the promised serpent-crushing seed of the woman who is to be the world-blessing seed of Abraham. Israel's great privilege was not inclusion in God's covenant of grace simply because they shared Abraham's flesh. The great privilege of Israel under the old covenant was to bring about the promised offspring who would then establish the covenant of grace. This means that when the promised seed of Abraham arrived, the old covenant became obsolete, in the words of Hebrews 7, and the people of that covenant became obsolete. They had served their purpose. The kingdom had served its purpose. And salvation is now offered to the Jew just as it is offered to the Gentile. That is through faith in Christ alone. Which is to say that all those who share Abraham's flesh but refuse his faith have no covenant and they have no future. This is key to Paul's argument against false teachers in Galatia. The Judaizers wanted to 
bind Gentiles to a now obsolete law, that is circumcision. And they wanted to bind them in this obsolete law to prove that they were truly included into a now obsolete people, that is ethnic Israel. That because they misunderstood the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, that is to preserve the coming seed who was promised in the Abrahamic Covenant, because they misunderstood the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant and of its law that was added to the promise after the promise and would only remain in effect, verse 19, until the offspring should come. Do you see the brackets there? The promise was given. And in Christ, the promise is fulfilled. The Mosaic Covenant and His law is added to the promise after the promise was given. And it is only in effect, verse 19, until the offspring should come. But once the offspring has come, the covenant is no longer needed. It has served its purpose. And so if you get the Mosaic Covenant wrong, as we see in the letter of Galatians, then you get the gospel wrong. A proper understanding of the goal of the Mosaic Covenant guards us from folding the Old Covenant into the New Covenant and folding the law into the Gospel because it understands that those whole complex of laws given specifically to Israel under the Mosaic administration were for Israel only, and all of them ultimately served a purpose, and that was first and foremost to preserve Israel until the promised seed that seed promised to the woman and promised in elaborated fashion to Abraham should come. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. But once the substance comes, the shadows fade away and the kingdom is obsolete with the covenant, just as it is today. So the first goal of the gospel is to preserve the promised seed, but it has a second goal, and that is to prepare sinners for the gospel to prepare sinners for the gospel. Pick it up again, Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. In other words, there's two parties in the Mosaic Covenant, but God is only one party. He's the one that's going to fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant, and that promise came before the law. So therefore, the law and of covenant breaking of Israel cannot in any way undermine the promise that was given before the law. Does that make sense? Let's move on. So why the law? Paul tells us in verses 19 and 20 that the true function and the first use of the law is to open our eyes to the fact that we are transgressors deserving condemnation and death for sin. So the first thing that the law does then is reveal our sin. It shows us our desperate need for righteousness. But that's not all the law does. The law that was given to Moses, who then gave the law to Israel doesn't ultimately leave sinners in their sin. The law conforms to the promise of grace by guiding sinners to Christ in the gospel. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But if the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
And so when understood and used properly, the law doesn't contradict the promise at all. It complements the promise. It leads us to Christ. And by believing upon Christ as Abraham and Sarah and Moses and David and many others did before us, we then receive all of the, be the benefits and the blessings of the promised covenant of grace revealed in the Abrahamic covenant. But then notice this in verses 23 through 25, like any good preacher, Paul's going to conclude his argument with two illustrations. In verse 23, he says the law is first of all like a jailer, and then in verses 24 and 25, he says it's like a guardian, like a pedagogue. He says first in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. The law, he says, is like a prison warden. That we are the guilty inmates and the law is our jailkeeper. But this isn't always a bad thing. That the law's proverbial bars serve as ongoing reminders that we are guilty. That Israel was guilty according to their covenant with God in the Mosaic Covenant. But that Mosaic Covenant ultimately pointed and proved the fact that all men everywhere are guilty according to the broken covenant of works in Adam. If Israel, who is given such great privileges in receiving God's law, can't obey God, what proof or what chance do the Gentiles have? No, indeed, all men everywhere are dead in Adam. And the law only proves it, locking us up, imprisoning us in it, and giving us no way to justify ourselves. We are guilty. But building on that, Paul gives a second analogy for the law in verse 24. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. That Greek word translated guardian in my Bible, verse 24, is literally pedagogue. It's a child guide. It's where we get our word pedagogy or pedagogical. In the Roman world, a slave was appointed as a child's protector. And sometimes each child would be individually raised by a pedagogue. And so from early childhood to adolescence, the child was under constant care, constant discipline, constant instruction, constant supervision. And in this way, the Apostle Paul is saying that the Mosaic Covenant and the law of that covenant was like a pedagogue to the kingdom of Israel. It was with them from their birth at Sinai, and it remained with them as they grew up in Canaan. It told them what to do, it disciplined them when they failed, and sometimes harshly, including disinheritance. In this way, Paul is saying in verses 24 and 25 that the Mosaic law was preparatory. It was prep school for Israel. And like any pedagogue, the purpose of the Mosaic covenant was to work itself out of a job. And so the purpose of the Mosaic covenant was to govern Israel's life in the land as a kind of covenant of works. And one goal of the Mosaic law, which came after the gospel, remember, was to show Israel that even though they were privileged in Abraham, they were dead in Adam. The goal of the law was to show Israel their need for Christ, the promised seed of the woman, coming through Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. And the Mosaic law was a pedagogue, a child teacher to show them who was coming. That apart from Christ, 
This is so important. Listen to me. Apart from Christ, this is why we began with the covenant of works in the garden. Apart from Christ, every Jew is dead in Adam, as with the rest of mankind. Despite his fleshly relationship to Abraham, that privileged them in the land, it privileged them in, by virtue of receiving the Mosaic Covenant and its laws, but no man is justified by obedience to the law. That's what we read in our assurance of pardon, wasn't it? But every single Jew who is in Christ by faith possesses every spiritual blessing and benefit promised to Abraham, including the gift of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 3, of every blessing and benefit promised to Abraham and pictured by the law of Moses. That leads me to a third and final goal of the Mosaic Covenant, which is to say, by the way, God is not done with Israel. God will keep His promises to Israel to save yet a remnant, but they will be saved just as the nations will be saved, and that is being brought by His grace to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same gospel that Abraham believed, that Sarah believed, that Moses believed, that David believed, and all those others in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. They did not understand it completely as we do. We have the privilege of being on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, but they understood the gospel sufficiently that they might be saved. Third and final goal of the Mosaic Covenant, to preserve a seed, to prepare sinners for the gospel, thirdly and finally, to prefigure a better covenant. Christ is posited in the New Testament I'm just going to fly through this as the true Moses. He is the true Israel. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2, quoting Hosea, out of Egypt I call my son. Hosea refer was referring to Israel. Matthew is referring to Christ. Christ is the true Israel. He is called out of Egypt. He passes through the waters of judgment in his baptism into the wilderness, just like Israel was, where he might be tested for 40 days, and in this way succeeding in his temptation in every way that Adam failed, and in every way the corporate Adam failed. Genesis 3 did not repeat itself in the last Adam. He proved faithful. He is not only the true Israel, but according to John chapter 1, He is the true tabernacle, a tent set among us. He is the giver, John 6, of the true manna. He is the bread of life, and He is the ultimate Passover lamb. Israel came out of Egypt, was tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is the true Israel who was brought out of Egypt and led out of Egypt to be tested in the wilderness for 40 days. He is the true covenant mediator. He comes to serve as the last prophet, the perfect priest, and the almighty king. And Israel, just as we saw in Exodus 19, would be an earthly kingdom of priests, that they would be a holy nation if they kept covenant. No, because Christ has kept covenant for us. Now we are called, according to the Apostle Peter, the true Israel. 
the Israel of God, Galatians 6. We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. He says that we, not the kingdom of Israel under the old covenant, we are Christ's beloved, blood-bought people, His chosen race, His royal priesthood, His holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. Moreover, Israel's occupation of an earthly land of Canaan points ultimately to our possession of a greater land, a new heavens and a new earth, and that with Abraham we are co-heirs with Christ, not of a strip of land in the Middle East, but of the whole world, Romans 4.13. We are God's new Jerusalem, the city that has no temple and needs no moon and needs no sun, because there we behold the very glory of God in the face of Christ forever. And there we will rule God's creation according to God's moral law as the faithful offspring of the last Adam, filling the new heavens and the new earth with the glory of God every square inch. All of that is prophesied in a three-dimensional way in the Mosaic covenant. So tell me that Israel didn't have the gospel. No, they had it in the form of a mystery, partially revealed, and yet enough to be sufficiently believed, such that if they reject it, they are dead in Adam, deserving of condemnation from God forever, despite their privileged position as God's special earthly people according to the Mosaic Covenant. Beloved, that is the privilege that we enjoy, that God has patiently, through many years and centuries and millennia, has brought about His promised covenant of grace in Christ, and through faith in Christ has brought you in to enjoy all of the blessings and the benefits that were promised to Abraham such that you and I might be called truly the children of of Abraham. Children according, not his flesh, but his faith. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray.